two primary places in the scripture this morning. We're going to be in Luke 23 and Matthew 27. If you want to find those two places, and then you can join us in that. But first of all, let's think for a moment about Palm Sunday. It was a pivotal moment in Jesus' life in ministry. He was at the height of his popularity, but yet he was also dangerously close to pushing the Jewish religious leaders over the edge to the point that they thought they had to do something about him. He knew very well the moment he rode into Jerusalem on that donkey to the praise and adulation of the people that the only way he would leave that city is carrying a cross. They cried, Hosanna, Lord! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They laid their garments down like a red carpet, welcoming him into the city. They waved the palm branches. But while the crowds praised him in the streets, the religious leaders huddled together in secret and knew they had to do something to silence Jesus. His influence was growing too great and theirs was waning. He even threatened the tenuous relationship they had with the Roman Empire, or so they thought. So before that day was out, while the crowds praised him, they plotted against him. They knew they had to arrest him, to condemn him, and to call for his execution. And within five days, Jesus was dying on a cross. We've been talking about prayer as we journey to Easter. And I think it's only appropriate that we conclude this series by looking at three prayers that Jesus prayed from the cross. I'm sure he prayed many more because he would have died the way he lived in constant communication with our Heavenly Father. But these three are recorded for us in the Gospels. first one is found in Luke 23, beginning with verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, 
There they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. few moments earlier, he had been lifted up on the cross in shame, humiliation, and unimaginable pain and suffering. And yet the first words out of his mouth are words of mercy and forgiveness. Father, he prayed, forgive them for they know not what they do. I wonder what the Romans thought about that. They were used to the Jewish people hurling insults at them. They were used to being cursed. They were used to hearing them pray for God to condemn them for their cruelty. But not once had they ever heard one being crucified pray for them, for their forgiveness. And not only them, but for the Jewish leaders who had condemned them and now gathered to mock him. It was an extraordinary prayer. And one that I think we struggle to repeat. I mean, as a Christian, I've, I've learned to forgive many people. That's what we're supposed to do, isn't it? As followers of Jesus. But surely there must be limits. There, there must be a line somewhere that says, this person went too far. This hurt is too much. This hurt is too deep. This sin is too great. And I cannot, I will not forgive it. Nor do I want God to forgive them. They deserve to be punished for that. There must be a category somewhere. Sin's too great to be forgiven. Perhaps you know of a few you would put there. But let's suppose, for the sake of argument, there is such a category. Where do you draw the line? Where do you put that line that says, these sins should be forgiven. I should forgive these people. I will ask for God to forgive these people. These people, no. Don't have to, not going to. I think if we were to have such a category, we would have to let Jesus draw the line. And if Jesus drew that line, here's where I think he would put it. He would say, you do not have to forgive anyone who hurts you more than they hurt me. Anyone who sins against you greater than humanity sinned against me, you do not have to forgive. Would we find any comfort in that? Not really. Because none of us would qualify. None of us have suffered like Jesus. None of us have experienced denial, betrayal, arrest, false accusation, torture, humiliation, and the insufferable pain of crucifixion that Jesus did. 
Nobody's hurt you that bad. And they never will. So Jesus' prayer from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, is not the prayer of the Son of God only. It's meant to be another model prayer. We call the Lord's Prayer a model prayer that we should emulate, that we should imitate, that we should pray. Well, this prayer from the cross is one too. We must be willing to say, Father, forgive them, regardless of what the transgression is, for they know not what they do. And they really don't. When people hurt us, they don't know what they're doing. Sin has clouded their judgment. Sin has influenced their action, their words. They truly are not in their right mind when they do those things that hurt us. Jesus understood that. And so he prayed not only for God to forgive them, but he forgave them too. And so must we. You might want to put something in Luke 23 because we're coming back. But right now we're going to Matthew 27. Verse 45. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi! Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let me say a word about the way they rendered time in Jesus' day. We count time from midnight, midnight to midnight. That's a day. That's a day. They considered a day beginning at 6 a.m. to 6 a.m. So when he talks about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he's not talking about six o'clock in the morning and nine o'clock in the morning. He's actually talking about noon and 3 p.m. And we know from the scripture that Jesus was put on the cross about nine o'clock in the morning. So for six hours, he suffered on the cross. And about three o'clock, shortly before he died, the most unimaginable thing happened to him. After, after nearly six hours of incredible pain and suffering, which was endurable only because he had this constant communication with God. God was ministering to him. The Spirit of God was ministering to the Spirit of Jesus. He was helping him bear the pain and the suffering he was going through. But then long about three o'clock, it's gone. It's as if God just turned and walked away, leaving Jesus alone on the cross. Because it was at that moment that the purpose for which he had come into the world took place. The Bible says that Jesus came to offer himself for us, to sacrifice his life for us, to die for our sins. 
And it was in that moment as he's dying upon the cross that the sins of the world were heaped upon him. The sins of the whole world, everyone's sins, past, present, and future sins were all piled upon Jesus, the righteous Son of God who had never known a sin in his life. There is no way we can understand the tremendous agony that must have overtaken Jesus at that moment. Far greater than the physical pain he was going through on the cross was this torment of his soul. When his righteousness was overwhelmed by our sinfulness. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he became sin. He didn't just take our sins like you might pick up something and carry it. They became his sins. Jesus became a sinner at that moment. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus' purpose, Jesus' mission in coming into this world was to trade places with us. You give me your sin, I will give you my righteousness. I don't know about you, that's a pretty good trade. Did you ever trade stuff when you were a kid? Maybe you trade stuff now. But I remember when I was a kid, we always, you know, I'd get certain toys, my friends would get certain toys, and for some reason my friends' toys always seemed more fun than my toys. Even though I had asked for my toys, and I got what I'd asked for, I wanted their toys. You know, about, about a month after Christmas, suddenly I wanted their toys. And so we would start trading stuff. And I would come home with stuff, and Mom would say, where'd you get that? Well, I traded Bobby for it. Well, what'd you give him for it? Well, I gave him one of my G.I. Joes. Sometimes I traded well, and I got more value than I gave. Sometimes I traded badly. I would trade a more expensive toy for a fairly cheap one. But this is a trade you will never lose, to trade your sin for Jesus' righteousness. And it all happened in that moment. And in that moment, Jesus lost any sense of God's presence. He lost his support, his strength. He felt utterly desperate, alone, and abandoned. And notice his, his prayer before he had prayed, Father, that intimate prayer of speaking to one he was in close relationship with. This time he cried out, My God! His father's gone. Or so he thought. He was abandoned by God so you would never have to be. He was forsaken so you never would. He was condemned so you won't be. He became a sinner. So God will look at you and see a saint. The great exchange took place in that moment. 
And it was such a horrible experience that nature rebelled. Did you catch the first part of that scripture? It said that about the sixth hour, which is noon, which is supposed to be the brightest part of the day, a darkness descended upon the land. We're not talking a cloud kind of go over the sun temporarily. We are talking a supernatural kind of darkness. It's like someone just reached up at nature and flipped the switch. Okay, we're going to make it midnight instead of noon. Dark. If the light of God's presence was gone from Jesus, then the light of the sun would not shine upon this world. How terrible it would be if that were the last words of Jesus on the cross. My God, why have you forsaken me? But they aren't. There's another prayer yet to come. I'm back in Luke 23. I'm not sure where you are, but I'm back in Luke 23. He picks up the same time frame. I'm in verse 44. He says, It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. So for three hours, from noon to 3 p.m., darkness descended upon the land. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Let me stop there a moment. In, in the temple, they had sections. They had certain courtyards. Uh, Gentiles could only go into a certain place. Women could only go into a certain place. The Jewish men could go into a certain place. Priests could go even farther. But the farthest point, the Holy of Holies, the innermost point of the temple, only the high priest could go one time a year to offer the sacrifice of atonement because that was to believe to be the dwelling place of God among his people. And separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was this enormous curtain. We're not talking like a window curtain. We are talking a curtain that would have weighed hundreds of pounds. It was huge. And it separated that part of the temple. And at this moment, the moment when Jesus is to breathe his last, the Bible says the curtain is torn in two. From top to bottom. Now if human beings had torn it, they would have grabbed it at the bottom and ripped it. But human beings didn't tear it. God did. He reached down from heaven at the moment Jesus died and he tore that apart and he said, we don't need this anymore. This is meant to keep you away from me because you're sinners. And I can't stand the presence of sin. But you don't have that sin anymore. It's on him. So you can come in, because all I see is righteousness, the righteousness of my son, if you believe in him. And then we have the final prayer. Jesus calls out in, with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. Notice how he addresses God? 
He's not my God anymore. He's back to being Father. Because something has happened in those moments between the sins of the world being piled upon him and feeling forsaken by God, something has happened to restore the presence of God to him. And here's what it was. Satan thought that he could conquer the Son of God by piling the sins of humanity upon him and overpower his righteousness. And I can just imagine him heaping them on, piling them on, getting on top, and I'm going to tamper. <laughs> I'm just going to push these down. He'll never get out from under all these sins. They're too many. They're too great. But he misunderstood the power of righteousness. Like a flame that burns Jesus summoned it from within and utterly destroyed all those sins that had been heaped upon him. It's like a time I was out burning some brush. You know, you get a bunch of limbs and stuff and you're burning this brush and you're getting tired. It's taking a little too long. So you see that pile and go, I'm just going to put all the rest of it on there. <laughs> so you get all the rest of that brush and you throw it on the fire. But what happens? It's too much. It overpowers the fire. And now you're just left with a bunch of smoke. And you think, oh, I've snuffed it out. But I didn't. Because I looked in there and there was still a flicker. A flame. And then more. And then more. And all of a sudden, whoosh! <laughs> that brush just ignited and went up. In flame. That's what I imagine happened upon the cross. The sins of the world were put upon Jesus, the holy and righteous one. And he said, I've had enough of this. The work is done. It is finished. And he blew it all away. So that when he died, he did not die the conquered Savior overwhelmed by our sins. He died the righteous Redeemer who once again looked to his heavenly Father and said, I am yours, you are mine, into your hands I commit my spirit and my work is done. And he breathed his last. He breathed his last so that someday when you breathe your last on this earth, you will take another breath. Not here, but there. The moment you take your last breath on earth, you take your first deep breath in heaven because he breathed his last to take your place. He died so that you might live. He suffered so you don't have to. He was condemned so you never will be. He was forsaken. But God will never forsake you. Now this is not the end of the story. But I don't want to ruin next week's message. So you're just going to have to come back if you want to find out how it ends. I know you're in suspense, aren't you? And as Paul Harvey says, we will give you the rest of the story. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the prayers that you uttered from the cross. Prayers of forgiveness. 
that you ask us to imitate. A prayer of abandonment that we will never have to pray because you did. And a prayer of release. Putting your spirit into the hands of God knowing that he would hold it tight in love. Lord, every day may we do that. We don't have to wait till we die to say, Father, into your hands we commit our spirit. May we commit our spirit to you every day so that we might honor you with the life we live on this earth. And then when our time on earth is over, may we release our life to you, the one who redeemed it, the one who gave his life for it. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I've just told you all of the things that Jesus did to save you and to make eternity a reality for you. But there is something you have to do. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. You certainly don't have to deserve it. But you do have to accept it. Imagine someone arriving at your door with the most beautifully wrapped package, knocking on the door and say, here, this is a gift for you. And you say, thank you so much. And then you take it in the house and set it down on the table, and for a year it sits there unopened. You've never truly received the gift, have you? You've acknowledged it's there, but until you open it, it's not yours. Jesus is a gift that must be received. And if you're here this morning and don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you need to. We want you to. We want you to know the salvation that He brought into the world the day He died upon that cross. It would be my privilege to receive you, to pray with you, to lead you in a simple confession of faith, accepting Christ. Let's stand together and sing our hymn of invitation number 254, verses 1 and 4.